Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Christine Benton. This is Roz Hobson, your co-host, both filling in for Beth and James Ma- Beth Green and James Maynard. Today's topic, International Women's Day, came and went. Did you notice? Let's talk about the day, the powerful women who birthed it, and the struggle we continue to make for women's rights. Holidays associated with women usually portray our sweet side. Mothers and Valentine's Day are about love and roses. But there's another side to women, a side of steel and struggle that's the real origin of International Women's Day. In 1907, women workers in New York organized demonstrations demanding better pay, shorter working hours, and the right to join a union. In 1909, garment workers in New York went on strike for 13 weeks in what was called the Rising of the 20,000. These struggles inspired socialist Clara Zetkin to propose International Working Women's Day to honor working class women's struggles and to draw connections between the fight for workers' power and the struggle against women's oppression. Are we there? Not hardly. Women are still fighting inequality and abuse around the world. Most of us know nothing about this day, so let's honor our foremothers. But let's also talk about the condition of women today and our continuing struggles all over the world. Call in. Okay, do you want to introduce me, Roz? And now we have Christine Benton. (laughs) (laughs) That would be helpful, wouldn't it, Christine? (laughs) Do we sound like we're in the third grade in our parents' recording studio? (laughs) We kind of are. So as folks may have noticed, uh, Beth and James are not on today. Have no fear. They will be back next week. I say that in part for Roz and me to have no fear. Um, But um, the women have taken over the airwaves. We have Roz and Christine, (laughs) and also we have our guest, Chris Reese, as well. And um, we have a really special show today, but I just wanted to acknowledge that we're excited and nervous, and this is our first time doing this without... Um, are, you know, the venerable um, Beth Green and James Maynard, but we've got a really great show. We came together to put together a really good show, and we're excited to bring it to you today. So, um, just as we normally do, um, we are going to read the, go through the news of the inner revolution. So, Roz, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Christine. Mm-hmm. So, our first piece comes from Interpress Service, dated March 17th, 2016. The headline, Not Enough Women at the Peace Table, Say Arab Activists. At the 60th annual session of the UN Commission on the Status of Women, Donor Direct Action, an NGO connecting women's rights activists to donors, and Karama, an NGO focused on violence against women in the Arab region, highlighted the need to include women not only in politics, but also in peace processes in conflict nations. Women should not be in the corridor but actually at the table, Karama founder Habak Osman told delegates. Yeah. According according to the International Peace Institute, between 1992 and 2011, just 2% of chief mediators and 9% of negotiators in peace processes were women. However, in conflict, women continue to bear the brunt of casualties, gender-based violence, and livelihood insecurity. Despite the unanimous UN adoption of Resolution 1325 calling for the increase in women's representation in conflict management and resolution, little has been done to enforce and implement it. 
No no woman has ever been the chief or lead mediator in a UN-led peace negotiation. In an effort to include more women, UN Special Envoy for Syria Stefan de Mistura established a women's advisory board, the first of its kind. Though it is a monumental step towards women's participation in peace talks, Mona Ghanem, the founder of the Syrian Women's Forum and member of the Women's Advisory Board, stated that this is only the first step. This is not what we are aspiring for. What we are aspiring for is not only participation, Ghanem told reporters. We are aspiring to be the decision makers, and we have a long way to go, she continued. The ongoing Syrian negotiations, which as of March 17th were on their fifth day in Geneva, have invited two parties to the table, Assad's government and the main opposition bloc High Negotiations Committee, HNC. Though the Women's Advisory Board will express their concerns and provide recommendations to the delegations, it is unclear how much influence they will have. While criticizing the lack of female decision makers, Ghanem asked, Why are men making the future of Syria? Why aren't women also making the future of Syria? Are we going to let those who destroyed Syria and committed huge human rights violations to women and children, are we going to let them decide the future of Syria? Yeah, it really, let me interrupt you for a second. It doesn't seem, it doesn't make sense, right? Like, was the number 2% Roz, 2% of women yeah, of, of the peace talks, 2% are women. And it's not like uh, women don't have skills in negotiation and communication. Um, so I just, I find that striking. Yeah, and it's sad, you know, that women aren't being valued for what they can bring to the table. I mean, they have to negotiate within their families every single day. You know, oh my gosh! Which, which, yes. <laughs> you think about what do you do? The negotiations you do with your own children. You've ever and been the mother of two boys? Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's it's sad that that's that's still showing the state of where we are as women and how we're regarded and what we have to offer in the world. Well, I, I hope change that. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Well, it it it's so moving, isn't it? And it it speaks to how patronizing. Um hierarchical male hierarchical structures can be towards women like they're patting the women on the head and letting them have this like little committee on the side so you know we can all pretend that we've got a big inclusive tent and we're bringing women into it but you know as as it so clearly demonstrates they don't have any real input and or any ability to affect change and we're missing 50 percent right 50 percent of the humanity that's affected by the decisions that they'll make are not part of the decision process. Yep. That's well said. Yeah. All right. What else you got for us, Roz? Well, our next piece is from the Washington Post on March 22nd, submitted by our producer, lovely Christine. The headline reads, Tennis Official Steps Down After Sexist Comments About Women's About Women Players. CEO and tournament director of the BNP Paribas Open at Indian Wells, California, stepped down from his role for saying that women's tennis association players ride on the coattails of the men and that they don't make any decisions and they are lucky, he added. If I was a lady player, I'd go down every night on my knees and thank God that Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal were born because they have carried this sport. Oh, my. (laughs) 
<laughs> Keep going. Moore went on to note that the WTA that the WTA has a handful of very attractive prospects. He clarified to a reporter that he meant physically attractive and competitively attractive. That makes it so much better. (laughs) The comments provoked criticism from the world's number one women's player, Serena Williams, who said, I think those remarks are very much mistaken and very, very, very inaccurate. And Billie Jean King, who tweeted that Moore is wrong on so many levels. The ATP and WTA tours also weighed in with public condemnations. He also was rebuked by Martina Navratilova, and the WNBA expressed solidarity, too. Wow. Wow, right? (laughs) When we were putting this topic together, you know, the the topic of the radio show is, you know, International Women's Day came and went, and did you notice? And it's like, oh, yeah, and it really could have been, you know, there could have been paid more attention really paid to it and the issues and everything and but how bad is it really like I'm I'm pretty much all right but then you read these things and it's it's pretty astonishing where yeah. the mindset is that he would feel comfortable saying these things out loud <laughs> yeah i actually watched the video of his commentary uh-huh and uh it was it was like he was sitting in his living room you know talking to his best friend and you know, it was really no big deal and he seriously believed it it was it wow. was actually scary. All right. Well, I think you've got one more. <laughs> I do have one more. Yeah. I can take a breath here. Okay. I think this one has a redeeming one um, that says, you know, that there are people who are thinking beyond just themselves. <clears throat> so we have a Daily Mail piece submitted by Erica and Escondido. The headline, dated March 10th, 2016, reads... Poignant clip sees men read their female colleagues' innermost thoughts on dealing with sexism in the workplace. Male advertising workers read the most poignant, heartbreaking inner thoughts of their female colleagues in an affecting new video. The clip, created by advertising agency TBWA, features a variety of men of many ages and nationalities, dressed in black against a black background, reading quotes from their female colleagues. Each of the quotes were submitted anonymously by women working in advertising and covered everything from a struggle to be taken seriously to the difficulty of balancing work and motherhood. The video was made in honor of International Women's Day 2016 in order to make women's issues everyone's issues. The first speaker, a dark-haired man with a stubbly face, says, People think I'm bossy when I have an opinion. Other quotes see women complain of being forced to act tough or being passed over for roles based on gender. In one woman's submission, she claims to have been told, I'm not the right voice for a sports brand. In fact, many of the women say that the pressure to prove themselves sometimes leaves them to feel like they cannot express emotion at all. I go to the restroom to cry so no one knows I'm weak, one man reads in the video. Another says she was told to come to a meeting just to look pretty, while others worry that perhaps their looks have played too large of a role in their success. Motherhood is also a big topic covered by the anonymous submissions, with the men from all over the world providing voices to messages like, having a child hurts my career, or I don't want to be a mommy tract. I don't want to be the mommy tract. Another reads, When I told my boss I was going to have a baby, he said, but your career was going so well. Some of the quotes convey anger or frustration. 
but others, such as the last quote spoken by a gray-haired, bearded man, are full of a sad recognition. I'm just not as powerful. Wow. Hmm. Well, I think it's a little bit hopeful, right? That there's trying to um, there's they're trying to have some ability to relate to the perspective of women, and and this is in the workplace. Um, I just wanted to add one more piece that just came up. I'm not going to read a whole bunch of uh, news here. I know we want to get into the the show and the discussion. I could see we already have a caller, which is exciting. Um, But there was just a piece, um, it was like a NBC affiliate that uh, interviewed Jane Fonda. And she admits that she didn't think she deserved the same salary as men because her self-esteem was so low. Mm -hmm. And that she said, you know, since childhood, she thought the ideal woman had to be thin, pretty, having good hair, being nice rather than honest, ready to sacrifice, never smarter than a man, and never angry. And um, she's saying just now, I think she's like in her 70s, as she's starting to claim who she is. Like it really took a lifetime for her to overcome that mindset. Yeah, she's 78. Um, So it's kind of something that I want to talk about on the show today um, I have a specific question for, for you guys and for our callers that are calling in today. But I do want to acknowledge, I think you, uh, our listeners will have heard um, Chris Reese on the phone. She's been a guest in the past. Um, she spoke a lot about um, cooperatives previously, but here today she's in her expert position as a woman. She's got a lot of expertise <laughs> on that topic. But also, Chris, you know, Roz and I were talking and we work in industries. We, I wouldn't call uh, design and interior design and public relations as male-dominated industries. There's still some sexism there. But you work in one of those industries where it's, it's the guys, right? It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, the insurance industry and just financial services and insurance um, so really appreciate you being on to give that perspective as well. Sure, um, thank you. Yeah, but the question, so I have a, I have this a question. It comes right out of kind of this, this Jane Fonda piece and this article is, and maybe we can start with you, Chris, was when did you wake up to the inequality of men and women? And did you fight it or did you accept it? Uh I woke up to the inequality of men and women when I was very small. Um, having worked with Beth, you know, for the listeners who don't know this, Beth, Beth is also an intuitive counselor. And when I was very young, like three or four, I realized that the boys got the perks in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the fourth child, and the two oldest were boys, and they clearly got preferential treatment. And... Um, I vacillated between fighting it and just um, kind of shutting down. When I was in fifth grade, I was at a Catholic grade school. And at the end of the school year, they called for the boys that were going to be starting sixth grade the next year to come to a certain classroom to sign up to be the patrol boys for sixth grade. That was the honor and the rite of passage going from fifth to sixth grade. (laughs) And I marched my little self in there. (laughs) I'm like... I would like to be a patrol person, Uh you know, (laughs) right on to the woman that was in charge of it. And she looked Uh at me and I remember she kind of looked at me over her glasses. So this was Uh like, this is like 1978. Mm -hmm. I know this is like 
1978 or 1976. And she's like, okay, we're going to have patrol kids, you know, and she just, boom, on the spot, she made, she made, you know, she made that shift. So, um, I, but I vacillated the rest of, you know, for a long That's time. That's fantastic. So, but <laughs> for a moment, you, you were a feminist, you were advocating I for was. your equal opportunity to be a patrol kid and pull yeah. those signs out. Yeah. Great. I okay. Did. <laughs> Yeah. But I did, I did vacillate for a long time between trying to use my looks to manipulate men and, um, you know, use that to my advantage, particularly at work. And then, you know, I'm 54 today. So you cross that line somewhere where you're like, damn, you know, there's a lot of women who are a lot hotter than I am. Like, where, you know, <laughs> I can't fall back on that anymore. So um, I've, I've done both. You know, I've tried to you know, manipulate men through my looks and also been a feminist. So I think there's a lot of inner conflict and, and hopefully there's some time on the show to talk about it a little bit. I see it in my colleagues. I see it in the women I work with, the inner conflict and the fear to like say I'm a feminist. Interesting. So you mean the conflict between kind of advocating for women's equality, but also wanting to have the right to use your looks and your um, sexual attraction to have some type of power or leverage. Absolutely. Yeah. No you know, doubt about it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I totally get it. I'm, I'm guilty of that. And in particular, um, I remember being at a trade show where we had to like produce like 16 press releases and like, like a hundred copies of each, I think. Um, and Kinko's in the, in the center was convention center was closing in like 10 minutes. <laughs> And I knew there had been these younger guys working there, and I, I sent, you know, the young, the young, prettiest girl, woman on the team <laughs> to ask them to stay late, you know? Um, so, I guess not something to be proud of, that I totally pimped out my, my female colleague, um, but um, it's, that's probably pretty endemic in the culture as well. I'm sure many of us are, are guilty of some form of that. Yeah. Um, okay, so why don't we, Roz, did you want to say anything before we open it up to callers? Connect with the, uh, the conflict. Okay. Um, I was, it took me a while to really kind of connect to when I first realized, even though it should have been fairly obvious in my world, um, that there was a distinction. And it really was as a young child um, where I could use, you know, whatever that charm was that I had to get attention um, from anyone, but it definitely worked even more so from the male perspective. Um, but the double-edged sword of that is um, it also brought unwanted attention and left me open and vulnerable in ways that I didn't want to be as a child. Definitely. Um, yeah. So, um yeah, I don't think I ever actually really made the connection. I think I just always have just connected to the idea of feeling powerless. I really connected to that last story. And uh, I don't think I noticed how early of an age it really started. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. like if we felt real power, did do we think, you know, we would really need to do that? Um and I don't I don't think so. <laughs> no. I I actually I'm I I I'm pretty sure I I if I had felt real power within myself or even seen it mimicked, you know, in the women in my family, that I probably would not have done that at all. I think I can, I, I feel confident in standing on that. I mean, no 
company knows the knows the future, but I feel pretty confident in that because I can see the changes in myself now. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's go to our first caller. Thanks, Roz. Um, we have Anne in Fallbrook. Hi, Anne. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Did you have a question, or do you want? Can you answer? Do you want to answer our our question, our topic we've been discussing? Um, yeah, I thought you might have a question, but I can comment. You know, I have a comment just on some recent experiences I've had in my career. But go for it. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was reflecting on this a lot. I think this topic is really important and timely. And I'm a teacher, and I work um, in our school on our school district's negotiation team. And you know, it's been really interesting over the years in the profession to really just see how people. I think in our we have a service profession, you know, and it's a it's a pretty female dominated um, profession. Especially, I work in an elementary school district, and I've just noticed over the years how hard it is to even. Um, convince others like what are, of our value and that we we should be paid <laughs> for our mm-hmm. time. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like I mean it even I you know I struggled you were talking about that Jane Fonda comment about having low self esteem and not even believing that you, you know, in your own value and what it should be. And I struggled with it myself at first, like um, you know, feeling like, well, this you know, when you're being asked to to serve on different committees, you know, and more and more things that are being asked, like kind of outside of your contract and not being paid, even when you ask. Sometimes you even get the courage to ask to be paid. And then they say, no, that's, you know, it's just kind of expected that you do it. And I also would notice that it seemed to be only the female teachers <laughs> that mm-hmm. would, like, accept these types of things, you know. Mm-hmm. I know, like, mm-hmm. I look around because I was working at middle school for the last 10 years, and there's you know, more males at that level than the elementary. And um, I just noticed, I'm like, gosh, we're, we're always the ones on the social committee, you know, <laughs> the, what, you know, committee, and they pass around this, this sign-up sheet at the beginning of the year, and none of the guys, you know, ever signed up for any of it, and they seem to feel no guilt either. Right. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> we typically, if we don't do it, we feel guilty, you know, and, and, yes. and, you know, whether it's self-imposed or other people, other women kind of looking down on you, like, how can you be so selfish, you know, to expect to be paid? And there was a committee a couple of years ago that started, and it, when I found out it would be unpaid, you know, I left it, and I even asked the other people who were all women on the team, and I said, mm-hmm. you know, how do you all feel, like, that, you know, you're going to be asked to do this every week for two hours after school, and it might be, it was an undisclosed amount of time it would, would be of a commitment. And they were just like, oh, no, we're fine. We want to volunteer. We care about the kids. And um, so I felt really awkward, um, mm-hmm. you know, not being on it. And it's funny, now that I'm on the negotiation team, that's one of the committees we're asking now to have a stipend for <laughs> and to be paid, but they wouldn't ask for it for themselves, you know. Got it, Yeah. And, um, so I just really see that, you know, it's like so prevalent even today, um, with just seeing that, that we have that, you know, expecting to even be compensated for our time. is like something we struggle with and it's sad. Yeah. You know, I think that's so true. I think it's something that so many people are just waking up to. Um, because if you look at our culture, you know, it's not like women aren't allowed to work or to vote, Right. <laughs> Um, right. So it gets it, it gets kind of more subtle, and I can see it in myself even until recently. Like, 
you know, it's almost like I, I pride myself on being accommodating and not demanding because I don't want to be seen as um, high maintenance. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. I compare it to like guys, they, you know, and I'm not saying all of them, and I know it's not true of all women either, but, um, you know, I just see more men in my industry experience at least um, being more vocal about promotion opportunities and raises and bonuses and um, you know putting themselves out there for that and I'm sure there's part that's in the culture and there's part um, that's you know that's been myself so it's kind of it's kind of all in there um, and one thing I think, I, I may have made a decision at some point. I remember in the 90s, I was in college still, and um, a friend of mine's older sister, very smart woman, very sharp, very hardworking, and uh, she worked for Pricewaterhouse uh, um, at the time, and um, she actually had filed a sexual harassment claim, and so had other women in her department. And what they ended up doing was they moved all of the women in that department into other departments. <laughs> so oh. they basically had to restart their careers. And, mm. um, and the man stayed. And, so they were penalized. Um, the women were penalized, yes. Even mm-hmm. though it was clear that, um, you know, the guy had, you know, done this multiple times. And I wonder if, you know, something in me, I just remember that moment so clearly just was like, you know, okay, just, you know, stay in your lane, um, you know, don't make waves, et cetera, in terms of work and just, you know, make yourself valuable. And I'm sure it has longer roots than that, but um, I do remember that, that incident distinctly. So thanks for bringing that up, Anne. It's a really good topic. Mm-hmm. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We also have, uh, we have another caller uh, on hold and, and that's Lizzie in San Diego. Hi, everybody. Hi. Gonna, Hi. I love talking about this. <laughs> I think it's very interesting how a, a, a day like that has gone by and hardly anybody knew about it, including me. So I'm glad this is being brought up again. <laughs> um. So I was going to answer the question in regards to um, when did I notice? Um, I don't remember the specific question, but I have the answer. <laughs> um, just growing up, you know, at a very young age, you know, just uh, watching the interaction, not just between my mom and my dad, but I grew up in a small farming community that, you know, was married couples, and, you know, the men always seemed to make the final choice. And... um you know, to me, that was like, okay, well, women didn't have the power. Even though I witnessed my mom do all the work that dad did for the most part, you know, he couldn't have managed the farm without her. But yet, somehow, I gained this perception that, you know, that the guy of the household is the one who rules or, mm-hmm. you know, has the final say-so. And what did you do when you realized that? Did you fight it or did you accept it? I did not fight it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, to me that was just like, just from observation, okay, that's how the things are. And I didn't, you know, I didn't feel anything in me to say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> like I do now. 
Yeah, and I, I'm I'm curious as to why we don't. And there's this whole thing right now um, about women who don't call themselves feminists, as though F, being mm. a feminist is a bad thing for mm. fighting for gender equality. And um, that just puzzles me because why wouldn't we want gender equality? You know, there's studies out there that show that it's better for everyone. Um, especially in the workplace and, you know, just tons of studies right now about diversity in the workplace, women and minorities included, and, um, you know, the best performing companies, having greater diversity, et cetera. So, you know, why wouldn't we want to fight for it and advocate for it? There's a question for everyone. Go ahead, Chris. I've I've thought about this a lot leading up to the show because – it is not prevalent in the um, insurance, you know, professional women to talk about being feminists at all, at all, at all, at all. And it's more like the dialogue of how do you climb the corporate ladder? You know, how do you be one of the boys? How do you get in on the inner circle? And if you're not in the inner circle, it's not right. And um, my my own my own belief, this is largely based on my own experience and, and why I kept shut my mouth shut, I think, for so long, and I'm, and I'm assuming other women are in a similar position, is largely because we so desperately want to be acknowledged for our contribution, mm-hmm. and we see how hard it is because it's not a meritocracy, and mm-hmm. it, it is a total freaking frat party. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is golf and alcohol and mm-hmm. the whole bit. I mean, mm-hmm. just the whole bit. Like, I, I spent time working at Lloyd's of London, and it's a rite of passage when, when you go to work in Lloyd's of London, that there's a certain strip bar that you're taken to, and, and you mm-hmm. get hammered. And this is... Oh, this my is, gosh. And obviously, I'm not going to the strip bar and getting hammered, so I will never go through that rite of passage. Yeah. So, you know, if you... If you if well, you, you could. <laughs> I could. Well, right. I, I, no one wants me to dance at 54, but obviously... <laughs> At 26, they would have been begging me to, but, um, um, but it's, it's like, you know, you're like, God damn, am I really like, I'm working so hard and I can barely get noticed. So heaven forbid, I say the obvious, Mm -hmm. you know, not only not advocating for, for gender equality, but not advocating for equality for people who are, you know, gay or transgender or who are not Caucasian. Mm-hmm. You know, all of it, all of yeah. it, all of it, all of it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's not good. good. It yeah. is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. another question. Yeah, go ahead. That um, is something along the lines of, you know, why aren't we or why do we do this? It's like looking at the fight that women did years ago to, to fight for our right to vote. And how many of us are still not taking advantage of that? Yeah, I want to, I'm so glad you brought that up, Lizzie, because I want to just talk about the origin of International Women's Day for just a few minutes here, just because it's fascinating. I know we have, I can see we already have, I think, um, three, four callers, so I'll do this quickly. Uh, well, Christine, before you yeah. actually go there, it just occurred yeah. to me that we were so excited to get started that we actually didn't give out the phone number. So in case there's anyone out there listening who wants to call who's never called into the show before, if I could just give yeah. that number out. Go for it. It's, it's 
472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. And we welcome the callers. Go for it, Christine. Great. And, and that's just not, not just uh, women callers. By the way, yes. I noticed that we have four four women lined up calling in, but um, men, please, you know, call in and comment also, you know, and, and the same question applies to you too, in terms of, you know, when did you first notice an inequality and, and did you fight it or did you accept it? Um, so, but getting back to the um, kind of the background on International Women's Day and Lizzie, what you said about, you know, the suffragettes fighting for the, the right to vote that was actually only one part of the women's movement. And, and when it really began, there were kind of two parts of the movement. One was more of like the working class woman. And then the suffragettes were more of like the middle, upper middle class to wealthy women. Um, they wanted the right to vote, but the working class women were more involved in um, a socialist movement, a communist movement also to have rights as workers and as women, but they they were fighting for um, both women and men. And there's one woman in particular I just want to talk about because the fact that I didn't know about her or ever studied her in any history class ever, I am just astonished. And you'll you'll see why in a second when I tell you um, the this one last thing that she did. But her name is Clara Zetkin, and if any of you have heard this name before this radio show today, great, but I I bet many people haven't. Um, But um, she was, um, this was like, she started kind of really involved with the socialist movement in Germany since the 1870s. And um, she basically, um, sorry, I'm kind of getting to a little bit about her. Um, She was just like a really strong voice for kind of like a Marxist approach to the question of women's liberation. Um, She felt that the source of women's misery and oppression was in capitalism and that the possibility of that liberation lay in the self-emancipation of the working class. So again, I'm just talking about the difference between the the suffragettes and um, these other roots of the uh, women's movement and International Women's Day. But here's a really interesting thing is that she represented the German Communist Party in the Reichstag from 1920 until 1933. And that's when Hitler basically dissolved it. He was gaining power and he banned that party. But just the um, that previous year, 1932, Clara Zetkin, she was elected, like she had been for many years, to the Reichstag. And at that point, she was the oldest member um, of their of that Congress, and as the old this member, the tradition dictated that um, she would do the opening speech. She opened the parliamentary session, and what she did was she did a forty minute attack on Hitler and the Nazi Party, which just gave me shivers when I read that. Like she had had other people in the movement with her who had been executed. Um, obviously Hitler was coming into a massive amount of power as were the Nazis. And, um, and she stood up there for 40 minutes and talked about, um, the, you know, the damage, um, that Hitler and the Nazi party would cause to the future of Germany. So, um, anyways, so that, that's, that's your little (laughs) brief history lesson, but I just find that very, very inspiring. 
Yeah. Um, it is, it is inspiring. Yes. Um, okay. So thank you, Lizzie. We're going to move on to Tracy in Phoenix, Arizona. Hi. Hey, Tracy. Hey, well, I'm so glad I came next because I was actually thinking of these women who started this International Women's Day, and I'm, I'm grateful you're talking about them just as a reminder of what people have done and, you know, how hard they have had to fight, but also their courage and strength. And I think I yeah. admire it so much because I feel like I'm sort of on the opposite end of that spectrum. <laughs> I feel like I'm more of the kind of woman who has been following the rules, you know, and um, not speaking up and not challenging things. And um, so if you're going along in the show, what, what I'm really thinking about, not only is that experience of, you know, trying to be nice and not assertive and fitting that mold, but how I have this, it's almost an instinct to want to teach my daughter the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. she's, she's four years old and she is not um, passive. She's like super <laughs> funky and <laughs> defiant and determined and, you know, all of these great qualities. And I, I struggle so much because I see her exhibiting these things and I think, you know, other kids aren't going to like her. And, you know, I, I have this dilemma in my head of should I be helping her to be more collaborative with other children or, you know, is it because she's a girl that I'm so bothered by it? Is it because I kind of bought the bill of goods to, to be that way and I'm trying to impose it on her? So even though I know, like, women should, you know, I want women to be equal, I, I want that for myself too, of course, and for her, but I also feel this internal struggle with the way that I have been and also how mm-hmm. I see myself in a way imposing that on her. Well, it's such a great insight and such a great time to ask yourself that question. Cause you can ask whether, I mean, obviously this was a strategy you adopted and you know, how well did it work for you to be nice and to be passive? Right. Yeah, no, it didn't. You know, I'm, I'm almost 40 and I'm thinking, you know, all of these opportunities I've had to speak up and out against things I haven't you know, mm-hmm. and so it maybe it felt safer, but I feel like I feel bad about myself, you know, as a person caring for other people to not stand up for whatever the issue, not just women's issues, but, you know, any, right. any kind yeah. of issue. I think when you adopt that stance, you don't speak up at all about right. anything. And so, you know, I think of all of the wasted opportunities I had to make a difference and, you know, mm. so there's that, but I guess there's also the gratitude for the awareness and, you know, realizing my life isn't over, so I can change. I just have to fight the instinct not to. That's right. Good. Great. Yeah. So appreciate the topic. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy. All right. We're keeping our um, engineer, Matt, real busy today. So we have next up Rose in Ramona. Rose. Hi. Hi, I wanted welcome. to say thank you to the two women who stepped in to take on the show. It's going really well, I think, and I'm really Thanks. proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Um, Thanks. And, and thanks for the topic. You know, it's a great topic um, that I think it's uh, brought up for me is how much I don't even think about it, uh, The you know, with the way I'm treated in the world. And um your question about, you know, where it started that you noticed the gender difference, it started for me, I remember now, in school, there was a, um, 
you know, a baseball team that no, no girls were allowed to be on. And I was like, hey, what's the problem? I'm, I, I have PE at the same time as these guys, and they're separating over there doing their baseball, and I'm doing some, I don't know what it was, but I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So I brought it up and um, was allowed to play, and I noticed that there was only a few of us who wanted to do it. So there was a, maybe three girls that joined that baseball um, then, and, and then you know many that didn't. But at the same time, the person I took it to uh, it was a teacher, I even remember his name, Mr. Lozinski. He, um, he treated me differently, and he was the only person in my whole life who called me by my middle name. And um, that special standout, it really struck me, and, and I think I got addicted to it. So at the same time that I was, you know, reaching for my own, you know, right to be there as a girl, um, I, you know, at the same time, I got injected this little specialness the way he started treating me, and I really think it's affected me all my life. You know, I, I believe I've been um, treated special, like Chris was saying something about, you know, using her looks or you use, <laughs> you use that gal to go get the Kinko thing. It's... It's like it comes towards me, and I don't say, wait a minute, is this the right thing? I just say, oh, this looks like a good deal for me, so I'll take it, um, you know, yeah. getting treated specially. And, um, and in the addiction of it, it's like, yeah, hey, it's supposed to be that I'm special. Come on. You know, I'm all for it, right? But when I stop and think about the impact it has, I realize I am... It's like I'm promoting not treating everybody the same if I do that. Right. And I want to change that, and I have. I mean, I've certainly looked at it, and I do things differently now, but I I know I have to be on the outlook for it all over because it'll just slip in there and be, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is normal. But I don't want it to be normal. I I, I, I so relate to what you're saying. I um I played on the baseball team in little league when I was in fifth grade, and I hadn't thought of it this way. My sons will tell you they that I talk about it all the time that I had I played <laughs> second base and I had a 300 batting average. <laughs> okay, so for a fifth grader playing in little league, that's like no big deal, right? <laughs> but I'm special because I was a girl playing in little league, and honestly, they're the rules are you can be a girl in our local little league. There's a, there's a girl, um, just one, but you know, there's nothing to prevent you from doing that. And, um, but what I'm saying is, I don't know, like if I was, you know, male, would I make such a big deal about my batting average Right. Um, when I was in fifth grade, but I want to be special because I was a girl and um, what it should be is, okay, do you want equality or do you want to be special? Um, because you can't really have both. Right. And I think what we're talking about is thinking about it for like the whole global way, you know, a global thought instead of an individual. What does this do for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Thanks, Rose, for bringing up that another slice of the topic. That's great. We have, um, I'm going to um, let you go. We have three other callers still. I love it. Thank you. Um, okay, next up we have Amy in San Diego. Hey, Amy. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, ladies. You're doing a great job. Thank you. What I was 
what I was looking at is when I first realized the difference, the sex difference was when I was in school as a little girl thinking, this is a big joke for girls to be in school. I'm just going to get married and not do anything with this. Wow. I remember being really angry about that. And at the same time, this was in the 60s, early, mid-60s, anyway, uh, I'm Jewish and I had a bat mitzvah, and in my synagogue, we were treated equally with the boys. We had the same length of um, presentation of what we were doing. In other places, girls only had a little Friday night thing, but we had full Saturday morning just like the boys. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, why is it like that here and nowhere else? Mm -hmm. And it just stood out like a... um, not a sore thumb, like an island of hope Mm -hmm. that disappeared otherwise. Um, Yeah. How old were you when you were in school thinking, why am I in school? I'm just going to get married. um, Before my teens, so seven, eight, something like that. And I thought, this is just a cruel joke. Gosh, it reminds me of the first time I watched the first episode of Mad Men, and I went nuts. (laughs) Because you see how it is, it was like in the in the sixties. I think it was the late fifties, early sixties that the show is set, and um, yeah, the the the, the culture is kind of it, it. Really, is that way? You don't have many opportunities no or space for women. No options, and mm-hmm. so I mean, there has been progress, right? Um, that's for sure. Um, but right. we still have a lot to go. It sounds like. And what I ended up thinking was, not only am I lucky, uh, or am I glad there's this one little island, but I'm lucky to have it because I probably don't deserve it anywhere else. That right. They were just an anomaly. And um, so you noticed it, and you didn't fight for it. You were just accepted it, but we're glad you had the little piece that you had. Right. Yeah. And I remember being yelled at or being made fun of by boys if I was smarter than they were. And the message I got, and a lot of people have said this, is if you're smarter than boys, they won't like you. So that was in my teens. So you better not show them up or you won't be asked out on a date. That's a so fine it was, way to live. Yeah. <laughs> all, all stages and ages. <laughs> oh, my I God. Still, I still see it in meetings in my industry. You know, adult women who they're... You know, no, you're not supposed to be smarter than the guys. You, you're not supposed to. Wow. I mean, you have to dance around it and, you know, modulate your voice when you make suggestions. And <laughs> seriously, right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very, it's very prevalent. It's it, this is not. Oh a thing yeah. Fast. And I'm a physician too, and I remember the first time walking into a meeting. And I'll make this last because I know there are other folks. And all the dots were men. And I was afraid to walk into the room because it just seemed like not a safe place to be. That's interesting. And to be honest, when someone says, I saw, you know, my doctor told me this, I'm like, well, why did he say that? Mm-hmm. I don't say, mm-hmm. why did she say that? <laughs> and I still do that. <laughs> Even though you're a female physician. That's good, I Amy. know. That's and really good. sexism <laughs> is the first time I heard it for, for men here. The first time I heard a male operator, this is back when you needed operators, um, mm-hmm. I said, may I speak to the operator? He said, this is the operator. <laughs> <laughs> you're kidding. <laughs> what? Men don't know how to use phones. Um, well, good. Anyway, well, thanks, that's Amy. It. Yeah. I'm sorry. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Yeah. And we have 
a couple, just two more people here. Um, if you tried to call in and weren't able to, sorry, I think this is all we're going to have time for, but we have um, these two. For first is Helen in Fallbrook. Hi, Helen. I, am I on? You're on. Hi. I just wanted to say it's a great show so far, lots of wonderful stories, and <clears throat> I feel like I have, it's kind of the same story, but a little bit different. My my grandmother owned her own farm and, and farmed her own farm. Mm. And I had her as a role model from the time I was, you know, a, a little tiny girl. And so it's like I had this denial going that, you know, uh, w- women did have equality. Look, you know, the women in my family take care of themselves, run their own, you know, make their own decisions and so on. But then on the other side, we had a very sexualized family where, you know, oh, you're pretty and you're this and you're that. And, you know, sexual power was also very much emphasized like Chris was talking and and you too and others. So I had this kind of, you know, schizophrenic idea (laughs) about what reality was for women. Did you have to pander to men or did you not have to pander to men? And I found myself, I also was taught by my mother, never count on a man. You've always got to be able to take care of yourself. Men are unreliable. Mm -hmm. And so I never wanted to be in the position of being the housewife. You know, like Amy said, you know, just you don't have to go to school. You're just going to get married. I never thought that. I never thought I was going to have kids. I wanted to be able to support myself. And yet, at the same time, I was totally into the belief that you have to have a man. Mm. Even though they're worthless, apparently, you had to have one. Mm. And that your, your worth depended on being attractive to men. So I just want to give myself as an example of how convoluted this can all yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you said, it, it gives you the option to kind of be in denial about it. But at the same time, you see yourself, you know, you're, you're, you're holding this vision like I had a great role model. And my mother, I mean, my grandmother was, you know, very independent and self-sufficient. And at the same time, you know, you're putting on makeup and um, trying to look cute. Exactly. So, yeah, and I wanted to be in denial. I wanted to be in denial when, you know, the question that you asked the earlier callers of when did you become aware you know, mm-hmm. on a, uh, really become aware, I was totally in denial of it, even during, and I'm 66, so I was present to the early feminist movement mm-hmm. and, you know, the burning the bras and so forth, and I thought, you know, what is the big deal? Women have just as much rights as men, mm-hmm. but I was with pure denial. I can totally so, relate, yeah. yeah. So maybe in the last week, you know, no, that's not true, but... <laughs> It was later in life. It was definitely later in life that I faced the reality that women's rights are very much suppressed to this day. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you know, we didn't even get into all the stats on violence um, against women. And I mean, Roz mentioned it briefly in that article. Like the women in Syria aren't at the table negotiating peace, yet they bear a lot of the brunt of the violence, the casualties, the economic instability, 
um, and, and don't have a say. And there are women, you know, I mean, how long ago did the Chinese women have to bind their feet? I mean, uh, Africa, they're still fighting, you know, gen- female genital mutilation. Rape statistics are high. Domestic abuse is pretty insane. And gender um, income inequality is still there, in, including in, in, you know, in all industries. I work in tech and um, it's 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 everywhere. So um, we just have a few minutes left. I want to give. Um, I want to be an equal opportunity radio show. <laughs> and give you. Richard. Thank you, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Helen. Um, I want to give Richard in California an opportunity to chime in as well. Hello, Richard. Hi, Christine. Hi, Chris, and hi, Roz. Um, great show. I, it's interesting. I know. I'm, I'm so glad I got to come on because so far I'm the only man that's called in and, you know, or got through anyway. And what my experience was, I was relating to your question about when I noticed the difference in equality yeah. treatment between women, men and women. And I noticed that in grade school. And I went to a, a Catholic grade school in the Chicago area. And so I remember clearly this, this might sound strange, but I remember clearly at one point wishing I was a girl because it seemed to me at that time, whether this is really accurate or not, I don't know, but that the nuns gave preferential treatment to the girls, that somehow they were treated differently. So my point is, not it's not mm. so much whether I'm, that's totally accurate or not, yeah. but I, know, I noticed the disparity. And... You know, so and in in the culture that I grew up in, which was Mediterranean and also heavily influenced by Catholicism, men were the the people in power, and women played a subservient role. Mm-hmm. And when I went to college uh, in the late '60s, and then I I went and got a, a graduate degree after that in the field of education. You know, that was the time when feminism was just rising and at its peak, really, and there was a lot of publicity about it, that feminism, that is. And so it seemed like, oh, yeah, I get that, I get that. But, you know, as I look back and I'm older now, I just see how long this has been going on for decades, for hundreds of years, and how it's just wrong you know, it's totally unfair. And I think for men, I, I mean, I can't speak for all men, but I know that there's a certain, for me, there's been a certain element of denial about that. You know, mm-hmm. that, oh, well, women have made lots of progress, but yet there's all these statistics that show there's a 60 to 70% of the income that men earn and all of the other practices that you talked about that are really harmful and hurtful. Uh, yes. economically and socially and psychologically and physically. So um, this is eye-opening for me in the sense that it gives me a, a deeper understanding of it that I don't think I would have gotten had I not been able to listen to the show today. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's it's great. I appreciate that comment. And also for you bringing up, you know, how there can be biases both ways, which there are, and we know that. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, thank you so okay. much. Yes, you're welcome. Um, Rosalini? Yes. I hate to be our reps, show next week. But yeah, we better, we better wrapping up. We have less than a minute to go here. So can you tell us about what we have coming up I next can. week? I can. So, sure. Next week, we've got Inside Capitalism, 
What It's Like to Live in 21st Century America, a conversation with Professor Richard Wolf and you. What is it like to grow up in a nation dominated by chain stores, multinational corporations, scarce, well-paid manufacturing jobs, a culture of money, and economic anxiety? What's it like to live in a society where about 80% of the population lives in urban clusters? What's it like to grow up inside 21st century American capitalism? What do we tend to value? How do we see ourselves in our world? What are our fears? How does capitalism shape our psyches and our lives? You were invited to share your story, but first, we will be interviewing economist Professor Richard Wolf about how capitalism has been changing for more than 50 years. For Blacks, women, gays, workers, and others, there may have been no good old days, but there were jobs and there was more security. Today, capitalism is a different bird. So let's hold the spotlight on capitalism as it is now, and let's talk about what it feels like to live inside its belly. Tune in and call in as well. This is our story. Let's tell it. Fantastic. I'm so looking forward to that. We've had Richard Wolf on previously. He'll be joining us again. Um, so I just want to say thank you, Roz, so much for co-hosting with me. Thank you, Chris, for being our, our guest, our special guest. And thanks to all the people who called in. And we will talk next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.